Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson, Giro d'Italia Stage 11 and Shell de Preche Recap. Our Giro podcast series is brought to you by our partner, Lacole, who produce performance cycling apparel road only. They focus on road cycling apparel performance you saw our rest day interview with pale bilbao go and check that out especially after his antics yesterday off the front in stage 10 in the giro uh he's obviously wearing the lacole kit that all the riders in Byron and mclaren wear and we've got a discount code as well all caps lr giro 15 lr giro 15 Put that in at checkout at www.lacole.cc and get yourself a 15% discount, which is pretty good. Benji and I got a few bundles coming our way ready for his winter in Belgium, <laughs> laughing at him, and my summer on the Gold Coast <laughs> once I'm allowed back over the border. But on to Giro Stage 11 and the shoulder Preis. Giro first, obviously. Interimini, 182-kilometer stage and a pretty cruisy one. I, we, thought this, we both thought this was going to be a bunch sprint. There are a few hills, Category 4 in the middle, about 3Ks and 5%, and 700 metres at 7%. The last one, Santa Cristina, 1.3Ks at 6%. Neither Benji nor I yesterday thought that those climbs were really going to trouble the scorers. But a breakaway form nonetheless, Benji, because these uh, the Pro Conti wildcard Italian teams always got to get in the break. Yes, the Pro Conti wildcard teams and Lotto Sudel. So Mattia Weiss from Androni once again. I think he's been in the breakaway for quite a few days now. He's probably high up in that breakaway classification. I should take a look at that for one of the next episodes we do. Mazuko from Bardiani. Romano is teammate from Bardiani as well. Sander Armé from Lado Sudel. I think that Armé once won a Vuelta stage, but I'm not sure about it. It was ages ago. Two years ago, three years ago, something like that. And then Fraporti for Vinny Zabu again in the breakaway as well. So I think it's the second time that Fraporti is in the breakaway as well. But I got to watch out because there's two Fraportis, Marco and Mattia, I think. Those are the names. And I don't know which one actually was in the breakaway. So, yeah, I'm just saying Fraporti from, from Vinny Zabu. <laughs> Outside of the breakaway, getting away, not too much happened, to be honest, throughout the stage. A bit of a snoozer. I think I also actually fell asleep at some point during the race. So... Yeah, not that amazing of a watch, but we didn't expect that really after yesterday's madness. And it kind of exploded in the breakaway a bit more towards the final. I think in the last 40-ish kilometers, they were on those last two hills that Elarge spoke of in the profile review, or preview at least. And we saw that two riders were the strongest in that group, dropping the others. That was Mattia Bais. Sander Armé and Fraporti. Fraporti being the last one to be dropped by Baez and Armé. And just after the last hill, or just at the top of the last hill, Armé went for it alone. He created a bit of a gap quite easily. At that point, the peloton was a solid two minutes behind the breakaway contenders. Armé kept up at one minute 50 for quite a bit. 
and Matia Baez was dropping and dropping and dropping on like a minute of Arme with about a good 13 kilometers to go. So got to keep it in mind, 13 kilometers to go, the gap is one minute and 35 seconds. On paper, you'd say the break might actually make that. But all the teams came to the fore in the peloton. Grupama was pacing already for quite a margin, but then UAE started pacing as well. We saw that Ineos was on the right of the road, also helping a tiny bit. And all these sprinter teams started helping out. But something mad happened at the, uh, well, behind the peloton, a bit earlier even. And that was the fact that Fifiani was in the peloton, sitting there nicely, chilling with the boys. And a motorbike ended up being kind of encircled by the peloton while they were crossing around a roundabout. And the motorbike blatantly rode into Viviani. So that was one of the uh, typical non-safe moments in cycling these days. Yeah, I don't know what the motorbike was doing there. I don't think the motorbike rider either knew what he was doing there and probably totally regretted being in that position once they hit that roundabout. So uh, a large and mistakeful miscalculation by the driver and yeah it's good that Viviani didn't look too harshly damaged from that crash but still shouldn't happen in cycling in my honest opinion and it's a shame that stuff like that still happens we've had plenty of riders that have big injuries because of a motorbike accident car accidents within cycling and yeah in general I think that it's something that should happen that is uh that is it nonetheless The motorbikes um, have been a problem yeah. at the Giro. Um, they're just way too close, even in the finale through the chicanes that we'll get to. The motorbikes just so close to the riders. They were in the middle of, of an intermediate sprint a few stages ago, I think before the rest day, and if the riders in the peloton had actually contested the intermediate sprint, it would have caused a crash for sure. So, yeah, the, the motorbikes are just a little bit too close to the front consistently uh, at the Giro. But your man, Sandra May. Yeah, he went clear, Benji. I can't remember when he got brought back exactly. I think you were getting a bit overexcited that he was going to actually win the stage solo. Yeah, i got to be honest. I was like, the group was still together. While I was watching, I went to get a drink and suddenly Sandra Arme was alone. So I was like, okay, something happened. And two minutes with about 15k to go, one minute 35 with about 14, 13 kilometers to go. It looked like he was actually going to make it, but you got to keep in mind, it looks like the mouth of a lion, the peloton storming behind the rider. And the gap went down so, so quickly suddenly. Like between 12 kilometers to go and 10 kilometers to go, I swear the gap halved or even more from like a minute and a half to like 30 seconds. So I'd start questioning whether the initial gap was actually still correct. But yeah, it's a zero. So the answer for that is probably no anyway. Now, yeah, Arme got caught. With about a good seven and a half kilometers to go, his story was over. And he was just slotted by the peloton in just two, three kilometers time. It's crazy. But the sprinter's team started moving up and started preparing for the sprint. Yeah, and once again, it was Israel Startup Nation who started leading out quite early with Dowsett. They did a similar thing in Toronto Adriatico. Actually, they sort of get into position for, I think, oh, was it Barbier or was he... No, sorry, it was Rick Zabel. Uh, I don't even think Barbier. I think he might have uh, abandoned the Giro. But, yeah, they had Dowsett on the front at about 4Ks to go. They did a similar thing in Toronto. But we've got a high-level, obviously, <coughs> sprinters here with DeMar. And 
Confidus had been working for Viviani all day. Um, they sent a rider to help with UAE bringing back the the breakaway and maintaining that gap. But then Viviani had had that crash that Benji mentioned. So who was actually going to sprint for them? Was it going to be Consoni, who sometimes their lead-out man takes up the sprint duties if Viviani's had an incident or something? But then, once again, just like they did in previous stages, as we mentioned, FDJ like to leave their lead-out a little bit late. They know there aren't any other teams with a monster lead-out. Bora aren't going to lead-out Sagan um, with four riders progressively then dropping him off with 200 metres to go. Uh, or 150 metres to go. No teams are strong enough to do that, apart from FTJ. So they're happy chilling. They let Israel Startup Nation do their thing, and then before the last couple of corners, they sweep to the front really hard and really quickly, I think with Scotson. Um, Scotson and Guarnieri, uh, their main men, the last two men, I think, before Arno Demar, who's still in the uh, Ciclamino jersey, the purple points jersey. They get into the last corner. Guarnieri punches it with like, oh, 350 to go. Uh, he's got Damar on his wheel. Gaviria's third wheel on Damar's wheel for UAE. They've been working for him all day. Sagan is fourth wheel. Guarnieri's about one and a half rider bike widths off the left-hand barrier, just like in one of the other sprint stages that Damar won where he kind of deviated. And Damar then starts sprinting. Actually, no, that's not true. Gaviria on the wheel of Damar starts sprinting, comes off his wheel a little bit early. Damar, maybe half a second later, starts sprinting to the left-hand side of Guarnieri. And Sagan goes and follows Gaviria to the right-hand side, quite a way to the right-hand side. But then Gaviria, after about five pedal strokes, it's clear he's going absolutely nowhere. So then Sagan switches off very quickly, swings across from the last right-hand third of the road all the way to the left-hand barrier pretty much to get onto DeMar's wheel, sort of dodging Guarnieri. Didn't endanger anyone. There wasn't really anyone there, fortunately, And but it was too late. DeMar's kicked 200 to go. Sagan's made that pretty bad positioning mistake or decision behind him, and DeMar's probably quicker than him anyway, even if Sagan had been in the... the uh, Slipstream of, of Demar the whole time. It would have been closer, but I still think Demar probably would have won, and he did win very easily in the end by almost a full bike length to Sagan. Alvaro Hodge third, maybe his best result of the Giro so far. Simone Consoni was the Cofferdist rider who came fourth. Rig Zabel for ISU fifth. Nico Dens for Sunweb sixth. Gaviria seventh, another disappointing sprint from him after being in pretty good position, actually. Stefano Aldani eighth for Lotto, Jacopo Mosca ninth for Trek, and Viviani coming in tenth. We'll give him the uh, pass today because he did get hit by that motorbike, so we're not going to read in too much into that, but just a shame for him uh, once again. But the FDJ train is the strongest train in this race by far. The they got the strongest sprinter in the, in the race as well, and that combination is why Arno DeMar now has four stage wins in this year at Italia. So hats off to Konovalovas, uh, Scotson, and Guarnieri for doing a magic job for DeMar today, and he then finished it off very nicely. He's now extended his lead in the points classification over Sagan, I think from, yeah, about 20 points now to 36 points, still with harder rate stages to come. That's still a very interesting competition. It is not over by any means. 
I don't think. Obviously, no movement on GC whatsoever in this uh, pure sprint stage. But I don't really learn anything new in this stage, Benji. Um, did you learn anything new or did it change your opinion about any riders? I mean, it's kind of the same old, same old. I believe that we knew that DeMar was the strongest sprinter overall. And I think that's a confirmation today. And it felt much bigger of a gap than the last few times he's beaten the others, except for that one time where Sagan wasn't even in the mix. So I'd say that it's just a confirmation that DeMar's still number one for Chiclamino, even after Sagan's adventure yesterday. Outside of that, Gaviria, I don't know. (laughs) He just sits up. (laughs) He doesn't even sprint fully anymore. It's kind of sad because I was such a fan of how he rode the Giro in 2017. I don't know, 2016, 2017, the year where he took the Chiclamino jersey when it was still purplish instead, if I recall correctly. I could be totally wrong. No, it was the same color as it is now. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I I was a real fan of how he sprinted there and those days, and I feel like he was better at climbing those days as well. So something went wrong in his career, and he just hasn't found his way back, which I hope he will, which is, yeah, hopefully happening sooner than later because I'm afraid it might not happen this Giro looking at his quality of sprinting so far. Yeah, I don't know he had COVID, but he then came back and won a stage at Burgos. But yeah, he just seems to be sitting up really early in these sprints, so I don't know what's happening. Maybe he doesn't have the legs, maybe it's something something mental, um, maybe it's still recovery from COVID, I'm not sure. But that was Euro Stage 11, brought to you by Lacole. Moving on to the Shell de Preche, another sprint race, but this is a one-day, it's one pro race, 173Ks from Shorten to Shorten. It's a circuit they keep doing. Uh, they do laps of in Belgium. Races owned by Flanders Classics. The start list was pretty strong, to be honest. We had some of the best sprinters in the world here. Sam Bennett, Green Jersey winner, Caleb Ewan, uh, Pascal Ackerman, Jasper Philipson, Alexander Christoph, Chris Lawless sometimes does pretty well at these races, Tim Merlier for Alperson Phoenix. And I can't actually see... Yumbo Visma on the start list here, Benji. Is there you know, a reason for that? Well, I guess it's because it's does not every World Tour team have to do this race because it's a one pro race? Yeah, I don't think every World Tour team does this one. And um, yeah, I feel like they probably chose their races according to the season as well because it's a very difficult season to plan your races and you've got two Grand Tours at the same time and probably races during that period. So I think the likes of a Mike Turnison don't want to risk their their upcoming race and about Van Aert neither in his Heldeprijs, their upcoming Tour of Flanders because they're going to have a bigger chance at Tour of Flanders. And yeah, we know from every single edition so far that they have a lot of crashes happening. So yeah. Yeah, true. And that's why one of the, I think our pick yesterday, or my pick, I think, for the race was Maz Pedersen. Well, we got into the race and about an hour and a half or two hours in, he abandoned um, someone said uh, somewhere that he had a tight hamstring. Um, others have said, and I, this was my assumption, was that he decided after doing a lap of the finishing circuit that there was no way he was going to be contesting the finale with Tour of Flanders coming up this weekend. So, yeah, no thank you. Um, that's certainly possible as well. 
But yeah, he pulled out. We've also got Greipel and Cavendish here. Is this going to be the last we see of Cavendish in the Shell de Preche? Apparently, he took off his uh, his number after the race. It's another reoccurring theme. And Case Ball was here as well for Sunlit. But uh, don't know what happened with him today either. Do you know who was in the breakaway, Benji? If you get in the break at Shell de Preche, it's like the most doomed <laughs> breakaway in pro cycling. It's always going to be a bunch sprint this race. Yeah, we had some riders that have been in the same team in the past as well in the breakaway, Fomenik Grujdev, then Mikkel Scher. We had Aski as well. Uh, Wirgen, I think it's Tim Wirgen. I'm not sure. Tom Wirgen, something like that. Mark Cavendish in the breakaway. He was uh, unsure whether Kendrick was his last race. That was not the case, knowing that he started here. And he was in the break again. I'm enjoying this. I'm very much enjoying this. Juliansen as well in the breakaway. Travis McCabe and Piotr Havik. From that breakaway, it quickly became clear that they weren't going to make it. Even in previous editions, we knew that the break would make it quite easily. But there was more to the parkour then. Now it's just a circle in Scotland. So, yeah, I felt like the break knew that they were going to be dead pretty soon. And we saw that by the fact that riders from the break just slowly dropped off the back near the end of the race because they knew that break was going nowhere. One of those riders was Mark Cavendish. He had been in the breakaway for quite a while, and with a good 25-ish, 20 kilometers, he dropped off the back of the group, and he looked, yeah, I don't know, just normal. He he uh, didn't look like he was worn out from the breakaway, so it was a clear decision that he was just going back to the peloton, and yeah, he wasn't going to be competing anymore in the sprint. We know that because, well, he's not the sprinter he was before. And additionally... In that breakaway, the strongest rider was, in the end, Piotr Havik. I think you made a video about him in the past somewhere where you spoke about how riders attack late in the race to try and win a certain race, and he has done that in the past already, and I think he tried that again today, but it was a bit too far from the line, so I'll drop it on to you with some Havik history. Yeah, I don't know what race it was. Maybe the Schlötingpreich. Um, last year in Belgium or Netherlands, he attacked with like 1,500 to go, I think, and got a nice gap through a couple of corners. But, yeah, he was in the break. So different today. And, yeah, I don't know why he didn't try and back his sprint at the end. Maybe he wanted to break tradition and actually win from a breakaway in Schlötingpreich, which never happens ever. But going into the finale... Sprint trains assembled, but it was pretty messy. And that's the problem with this race is I don't, I don't think the finale was particularly dangerous, to be honest. Uh, it was wide. The, I don't think the finale caused the crash that did happen today. But the problem is this race is so easy that you have so many riders coming to the finish contesting the sprint. And we saw that when with maybe 5Ks to go, 6Ks to go, how many riders were there. In the trains, you got Pascal Ackerman being led out for Bora, but then he got detached from his lead-out train, so he had just his last man with him. And then I think it was Austin Co up to front. You had Caleb Ewan, who was just looked after by uh, Roger Kluger, I believe, and uh, Jesper de Bush and Florian Vermeersch. So Kluger, they just keep him in good position and try and put him up there. They don't try and leave Ewan out. Whereas... To Kearney Quickstep, we're doing the opposite. I think Quickstep today, once again, were very prominent early. And then when it came time in the last kilometre to have Bennett being put into good position, he they weren't there to lead up men for him. Uh, but Van Leerberger wasn't there. And 
it was pretty much Bennett 15, 17 wheels deep at least with a K to go. And yeah, whereas UAE did a really good job, I think, for for Philipson, they had, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty good for UAE. They've got Alexander Kristoff, who um, is almost is capable of winning this race, who actually won this race in 2015. I'm pretty sure they got Kristoff leading out uh, Jasper Philipson, and that's why they had Philipson in a really good position late. Alpes and Phoenix actually were timed their lead out the best. I think they came pretty hard with about a k to go. Overhauled quick step to the left hand side, overhauled whatever pass, uh, Bora Hansgrohe were doing. And it was Caleb Ewan surfing wheels. And you'll see this if you watch the uninterrupted helicopter shot. You can see from 1200 meters onwards, Ewan is just surfing wheels the whole time. And for a small guy who probably you know, isn't as strong or, or heavy to protect himself compared to, say, a Christoph or a Sagan. He maintained such good position despite having no one on his team to support him. He switches off onto the Alpes and Phoenix train when they came over and he got in the middle of Ackerman and Ackerman's last lead-out man. You have then got Alpes and Phoenix kind of dying and UAE punching up to the left-hand side now with like 600, 500 metres to go. I think Christoph leading out for Jasper Philipson. So Ewan then gets onto Philipson's wheel, third wheel, and so Christoph, Philipson, Ewan, and then like a whole bunch of other riders trying to fight for Ewan's wheel. No one really getting a great sit. Like Bonifacio there, um, I believe. Uh, who else was there? I think Edward Turns was trying to sprint instead of Pedersen for Trek Segafredo, Buani. Bennett and Ackerman were very, very, very far back. And you can see it in the overhead shot with like, 600 metres to go. They're so far out of position compared to where Ewan was. Um, and, yeah, Ewan just got clear air at 200 metres to go. He got separation from the others. When he launched his sprint, he went round to the right-hand side of Christoph. He jumped Philipson. So before Philipson came off the wheel of Christoph, Ewan went early. Great move from him because of the just so many other riders behind him that doors got shut on the other riders very quickly. And he thought, okay, I'm going to lead out, go, go to the front, maybe go a little bit early, but, no one gets a great draft off Ewan anyway because he's so small and it's better to actually, in a race like this where there's so many people sprinting, um, at least ensure that you're going to have a clear lane to the line. And Ewan did. The minute I saw him go to the front, I was like, this is over because, yeah, he's got the quickest acceleration and Bennett and uh, Ackerman was so far out of position. Then Bonifacio, I think, switched off to Ewan's wheel. That shut the door on uh, Bennett, who'd come off the left barrier trying to follow Ewan, but it was all too late for him. Um, I don't really have an issue with what Bonifacio did there, to be honest. Merlier and Philipson were going to the left-hand side on the barriers, to the left of Christoph. There was maybe enough space for the two of them, but it was very narrow. And again, I didn't really have an issue with what Philipson did. He came off Christoph's wheel to the left-hand side, started launching his sprint into the space there. Melier's trying to shoot a gap that isn't really there, to be honest. He got cranky with Philipson at the end. But Ewan wins easily. But the big news is, and we saw this in the front-on shot when the camera changed to it, there was a massive crash. As Benji said yesterday, there was going to be a crash. And it was caused by Pascal Ackerman. He was really far out of position. He came off the left barriers and then he just chopped a real-world rider, a uh, real-world Securitas cycling team, I think Augustus Jensen, 
who went down so hard. And yeah, Ackerman seeing that Bonifacio was closing the gap on Bennett and that was going nowhere, was trying to get to a big patch of space to the right-hand side of the road. There was a reasonable gap if he just waited a little bit more. Like There was a gap I thought he could shoot there if he'd been a bit more patient and less reckless. That's not the issue. The issue is, and he's obviously deviating across, he's, he's going horizontally across the road. But the thing is, you are allowed to go horizontally across the road. He hadn't launched his sprint yet because he was behind about seven riders in their draft. He's trying to get to the open space to the right-hand side. But in doing so, he just chops Jensen so badly at like 65, 70 k's an hour, who went down very, very hard, smashed his head on on the, uh, the pavement. And yeah. Ackerman then came round and he was second to Ewan across the line. Bonifacio third, Cockard fourth, Merlier fifth, Philipson sixth. But then Ackerman predictably got relegated. He didn't get disqualified. He got relegated to the last in the group. Um, and yeah, do you think, I'm pretty sure Benji, they relegated him under the sprint deviation rule, but Based on our interpretation of that, I don't think he'd actually launched his sprint and deviated from his lane really yet. He hadn't got into his lane yet. It was in the, he was kind of doing what Sagan did in the Giro stage today or what Ewan did in Tour de France. He was trying to move across, trying to find a clear lane to the line. Yeah, it's very unclear when races like this, unlike the Tour de France, that don't post it, that don't post their punishment uh, review thingy at the end of the evening to what rules certain people were punished, yeah, then it's difficult for us to guess which rule applies here. But deviation rule doesn't apply here. We spoke about it before. So the only rule that applies here is the endangerment separate rule. So you've got the rule with deviation that says that you can't deviate and in doing so danger another rider. And there's also some other rules somewhere. I've read it. I've spoken about it on the podcast. I've literally said the words on the podcast, but I can't remember what rule it is. But it says something about endangering other riders in the race. And this clearly falls under that. So they have a reason to relegate. The thing is, I also think that they're going to say that they did it according to the deviation rule. Because at this point, I genuinely question whether UCI judges actually know what they're doing. But I also think that because other stuff happens in that sprint as well. You've got Bonifazio who's sprinting on the left side of the road on like three meters of road he needs to sprint. And he feels like his lane is three meters because he swings to the left and the right so vigorously that it's so dangerous for any rider surrounding him. And Philipson can't pass on the left because of that. So he basically closes the door doing this so. So... Yeah, on paper, that's also a deviation. But then again, it's just because the guy sprints like a maniac. So is it dangerous sprinting? Is it deviation? I haven't analyzed it enough to actually say what rule that could file under. But Bonifazio was sprinting dangerously. Then you've got Philipson in the wheel who's trying to pass but gets endangered by it. So he gets his hand off his steer and tries to push Bonifazio away, so he should get relegated as well. So <laughs> it's an endless loop at this point in this sprint. Looking at the sprint, you can relegate four riders straight up. Yeah, if you wanted to apply the rules really strictly, perhaps you could. 
Um, I still think Ackerman should have been disqualified under a general rule that does exist about endangering other riders riding recklessly, but I don't think they did. And again, as Benji mentioned, they don't publish the reasons why. So we're we're, we're guessing, and it, because he got relegated, not disqualified, I think it's a pretty safe guess that they relegated him under the sprint deviation rule, which, yeah, doesn't make sense. Um, and I, I said, I think on Reddit, um, yeah, according to the line deviation rule and how it's interpreted, this should not have been a disqualification. Ackerman's not yet in clear air or launched his sprint or chosen his lane for the, to the line. There are more general rules regarding endangerment that they can relegate him on. So there's an issue already, Benji, with the identification of sprints that the rule applies to because this rule is so poorly written. We've spoken about that before. And also, once again, this punishment is not a real punishment for Ackerman. He could have seriously hurt Janssen, who looks to be okay at the moment. He got up and was speaking, etc. but he went down so hard. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he's badly concussed, hitting his head that hard. And Ackerman just gets relegated. And it's like, well, if he doesn't make that move, he's not going to win anyway. So he's lost literally nothing through this punishment. Uh, maybe he got a 200 Swiss franc fine or a 500 Swiss franc fine. But there needs to be a proper system in place where this sort of shit causes actual suspensions or whatever or whatever uh further down the track and it's because it's not working at the moment there's no real stick to hit the riders with uh, unless it was a really really big uh, monetary fine of like ten thousand swiss francs or something like that but then if you're going to be applying really really big fines you got to make sure you're actually applying the rule fairly and consistently too um and i do want to call something out as well um because it's Come, it's been posted around the traps and um, pretty disgraceful from Bora Hansgrohe actually. And I, I don't know who their PR person is, um, but he or she is a really really bad at their job, and b just not a great yeah, just not great, not a great look from the organisation. So they've posted very quickly after the conclusion of Shell de Prèche. Headline, Pascal Ackerman relegated in frantic sprint finale at Shell de Prèche. And they said, yada, 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 pace was high in the last 5Ks, is their race report. Pascal Ackerman came from a little further back, but he found a hole at the 150 metres mark to break out on the right-hand side with one rider crashing behind him. It was too late to catch Ewan, but he crossed the line in second place. Unfortunately, Pascal was relegated after a jury decision a little later. And then they have a little headline and a subheading with a quote from their sports director, Stefan Radokla. This was clearly misjudged from the jury. Pascal found a hole and launched his sprint without touching any rider. Unfortunately, one guy touched his back wheel and then took a fall. But this was a racing incident we see quite often. From my view, this is simply the wrong decision. It is pity for Pascal, but also for the other guys, as they did a really good job today in the finale. Um, <laughs> what's your initial reaction to that benji because i'm i'm pretty i'm about to get pretty fired up the statement is just embarrassing of radokla because you've got a previous sprinter radokla who should know the rules anyway and because he's a ds of a world tour team i'd expect him to know the rules even more and additionally he's literally blaming the guy that ackerman rode into has to be the perpetrator of crashing himself into Ackermann. So, 
yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, two people are in the wrong, right? The sports director's in the wrong because he's literally saying stuff that didn't happen if you use your eyes. Arca- Jensen is sprinting. The, the guy that crashed sprints in a dead straight line, doesn't move at all, right? And Ackerman chops him really violently. He, I don't think he had any ability to really predict it or move out of the way. Ackerman, there was a hole, but he he destroyed this guy's front wheel in moving across, moving his back wheel savagely across and chopped him. So, A, he made contact with Jensen. Jensen did not make contact with him. B, this was not just a racing incident that we, <laughs> we see quite often. Um, usually if there's like a slow move into a hole like this across a different line, that it'll give a rider a chance to break. Like we saw Sagan did that to Hofstetter in the tour. Hofstetter touches brakes, etc. Ackerman comes from the side of uh, Jensen. He couldn't move at all. Uh, so that's not true. So Ackerman's caused him to fall. Um, and to characterize it as Jensen touching Ackerman's back wheel, just just ludicrous. I don't know, I don't know what they're watching. Um, and also, another thing, Bora didn't really do a good job for Ackerman in the finale either. He was in really bad position. So, yeah, maybe don't say that either because if, he, if they did such a good job for him, why was he 15th wheel behind about 10 sprinters with nowhere to go? Uh, and you and Philipson with clear air. So, not great for him. And the second person who's fucked up here is whoever the PR person is because even if you even if Stefan Rodekler thinks that and, and that's fine you know maybe he's Ackerman's his guy and he's an old school DS or whatever and it's the heat of the moment he's only watched it once on the in the, on a small screen or something and, and tensions are high I get that that's fine you know people can people say funny things why is their own PR person publishing that which is obviously anyone with half a brain knows that that is a clown statement and an insensitive statement, uh, and wrong. So I get it if another if a journalist is trying to get a few clicks or whatever, um, which I'm not opposed to, and they publish it because they get a quote from him, but why is the Bora PR person putting that on their website? They have to know that that is just not going to be taken very well. And people have already... Um, it's already going up on Twitter, etc. People are like, "This is a <laughs> people saying this is an absolute clown um, statement," and also to not have anything in their statement about we hope we hope Jensen's okay, we hope he, he's all right, etc. Um, which apparently he is, no serious injuries, etc. And he's doing well, uh, which is an update from their team. But Bora like it's his fault he crashed, um, and he just took a fall, so. Yeah, I mean, what an embarrassment uh, for Bora Hansgrohe and their PR person. Maybe they should uh, revise that. Again, I'm disappointed. Interesting general because this is unnecessary and the addition of this influencing the sport a bit because you've got the race itself, but then the garbage that you hear afterwards, that annoys the fuck out of me. And even if we talk about stuff we've spoken about before, I read an article this afternoon somewhere where Adria van der Poel, Adria, that's, that's not something, that's a team, Adria will, uh, Adria van der Poel made a remark about Vanad about their, uh, their warfare of the last uh, week. And I compare it a bit with Radoha here because those are unnecessary statements afterwards. 
And Van der Poel's dad, Adri, he wrote that Wout van Aert didn't win the world championships, so his world championships were su- such a failure anyway. So <laughs> that's like he's trying to put oil on a fire that doesn't need to be there. And yeah, I feel like stuff like that, this drama, it's obviously fun if it's between like contenders of a race, but if people that aren't actually in the race start talking like that, I don't really give a shit and it annoys me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd be careful. If I was him, I'd be careful saying stuff given that um, maybe you should just go over some race footage and say to Matthew Van Der Poel, hey, you see these guys wearing the same, or oh, they're not wearing the same colour jersey, but these guys in the Alpes and Phoenix jerseys, they can help you in the race by you sit on their wheel and they give you a draft and they can help you bring back moves of other riders. And then in the end, you'll have more energy. Um, maybe you'd be better spent looking over some footage uh, for that. But I do want to say I was harsh on Bora there. Rudiger Selig on their team, he saw that Jensen had crashed and he you'll see footage as well in the shelter crash of him immediately going to check on him. So class from Rudiger Selig. Um, but that's all from today. Not the best day of cycling at the shoulder place or the Giro. Uh, stage 11, two sprint stages, not the most exciting in shoulder place. Unfortunate crash that Benji said yesterday was going to happen. I don't think it was the parkour fault. It was just Ackerman with a dangerous move. That's all from us today. We'll obviously be back tomorrow for Giro Stage 12 recap brought to you by Nicole. Until then, ciao. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.